Uh, So Mark chapter 4, reading from verse 35. Uh, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with, with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, he being Jesus, of course, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And the sea obey him. Uh, This is now chapter 5. Then uh, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the um, Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, rent, he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he, he was always crying aloud, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you done? With, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what, was, what, it, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. <clears throat> And those who, who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And, he was, and, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and and was no better, but but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that, that she was healed of her disease." 
And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But other hearing, but, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, uh, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, as uh, the children make their way out, let me say good morning again and thank you to uh, Jonathan for leading us through the service so far. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking uh, about that section from one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life from Mark's Gospel. Uh, You might find it helpful to have that open in front of you over the course of the next few minutes so you can refer to uh, that text. But before we think about it together, let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you this morning as a speaking God, one who has revealed yourself to us in ways we can understand. We pray now that as we study your word together, you would please use it to change each one of us. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Well, what are you afraid of? It's a cheerful way to start a talk, isn't it? What are you afraid of? Well, let me ask you to take a moment to think about it. What kinds of things really frighten you about the world we live in? Given a moment or two to consider it, I guess that most of us could come up with a few different answers to that kind of question. You might be fearful, for example, of human evil, of some people treating other people really, really badly, perhaps even treating us or those we love really badly. And we don't need to think too hard, do we, to identify examples of that. We might think of historical examples, uh, people who've perpetrated horrific evils to other human beings, folks like, like Hitler or Stalin. Or we might think of human evils on a more personal level, the acts of, of selfishness, of cruelty, cruelty or of hatred committed by one person to another. Human evil, that's what I'm afraid of. Perhaps you aren't as fearful, though, of evil as you are of suffering. 
of sickness, for example. Sickness, perhaps, in our own lives and the limits it might have placed on our lives. Or perhaps, what scares us is death. We're afraid of our own death or of the loss of people we know and love. Suffering, that's what I'm afraid of. Or maybe you're fearful of the planet itself. Because there is a problem, isn't there, with the earth we live in. The environment is creaking. And the damage that can bring about, well, it's frightening. We've had just a small taste of that this weekend in Aberdeenshire, haven't we? And yet other parts of the world experience the chaotic power of nature far more regularly than that. Indeed, every year it's estimated that natural disasters result in over 60,000 deaths worldwide. What are you afraid of? Well, when you take a moment or two to think about it, plenty as it happens. Now, we're continuing this series in Mark's account of Jesus' life this morning, and so far we've seen that Jesus came preaching good news. Good news of God's coming kingdom and of himself as God's rescuing king. And the response that Jesus has called for is one we've seen evidenced this morning in our baptism service, one of of repentance, of turning away from that rejection of God, and of belief, of trusting that Jesus really is God's rescuing king. And in our passage for this morning, we aren't just going to be told to believe in Jesus. We're going to be persuaded to believe. To believe that he is who he says he is. And more than that, persuaded to trust him. What do I mean? Well, we're tackling what I'm aware is is a big unit. It's a bigger chunk of text than we would usually think about on an average Sunday. It's made up of four episodes. And, well, we could have had a really profitable time thinking about each of them one by one in this series. But whilst they are each powerful individual episodes, well, when taken together, they function like four tiles in a mosaic four pieces of a collage, they combine to paint a much bigger picture. What's it a picture of? Well, it's a picture of one with unparalleled power, power even over the things that so often leave us feeling powerless and fearful, evil, chaotic nature, sickness, and even death itself. And in the face of one who has power over those four things, those four enemies of humanity in many ways, we are each confronted with a decision. A decision to either believe in him, believe he was who he says he was, and therefore to lean our faith and trust into him, even as we live in a chaotic and fallen world, or to reject him and to continue to live in fear. Those are the choices we'll be left with this morning. But before we get there, let's think a bit more closely about each of these episodes in Mark chapters 4 and 5. We'll do that firstly under the heading. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you. Jesus has power over chaotic nature. We've not got any slides, but that's okay. Jesus has power over chaotic nature. Chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. 
And so Mark tells us, chapter 4, verse 35, that Jesus gets into a boat at the end of a long day of teaching. And verse 38 falls asleep. But while he's resting, a windstorm or a hurricane builds with waves breaking over the bow of the boat. And the boat begins to fill with water. Now, it's fair to say, I think, that people have different levels of tolerance for open water, don't they? My uh, great-grandfather was a fisherman on the Murray Coast. Uh, He owned a boat and was apparently renowned for being quite bold uh, as a skipper. His boat was one of the first out and the last into the harbour, even when the weather was pretty ropey. Sadly, though, the the seafaring genes died with him, uh, and I tend to get a bit seasick in the bath. Uh, I was feeling a bit ropey in the baptism tank this morning, a few minutes ago, actually. But it's just worth remembering that the people who are with Jesus in the boat, well, they're more like my great-grandpa than they are like me. See, before they'd met Jesus, at least a few of them had made a living from fishing. We saw that a few weeks ago, didn't we? They're used to risking life and limb out on the open water. But notice how they react as the waves are battering the boat and they start taking big lumps of water over the side. Verse 38, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're absolutely powerless at the mercy of chaotic nature. And so they are terrified. And so what does Jesus do? Does he help to bail water out the side of the boat? Does he start fiddling with one of the sails to see if that might help make it to dry land quicker? Well, no. He does something that on the face of it is quite frankly ridiculous. Verse 39. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. He speaks to the storm. Now, if that doesn't sound all that ridiculous to you as you read it, well, the next time you find yourself on a boat, just you try it. Or if you're too embarrassed to do that in public, try it the next time you're in a bath. And see if you can even make the ripples in a bath stop. But even more outlandish than that is what comes next. Verse 39, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus tells the wind and the waves to settle down, and like an obedient dog, they do what they're told. Now, you might be aware that there have been efforts by climate scientists over the past few years to try to make it rain. It's not a problem we're facing right now, I guess, but in certain parts of the world it is helpful to make it rain. And the process by which they try and make it rain is called cloud seeding, where chemicals are shot up into the atmosphere to try and encourage some kind of precipitation. And if it sounds a bit fanciful to you, eh, organisers of the 2008 Olympics in Beijing tried it. Eh, They sent up over a thousand rockets just a few hours before the opening ceremony to try and make it rain before rather than during the opening ceremony. And it's a pretty amazing thing that we can, we can do that, isn't it? And yet, even using the most advanced technology in the world, well, the very best they could manage was to encourage it to drizzle a little bit. We don't have any real power over nature. 
We can sometimes get close to predicting it, but we can't really do much to stop it. And yet what Mark is telling us is that Jesus speaks a couple of words and calms a storm. That's real power, isn't it? The miracles don't end there in Mark's account, though. Let's pick things up at the beginning of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, Jesus has power over demons. Now, we've already considered an exorcism that happened in Mark's account, if you've been with us in our studies through Mark so far. But nothing we've seen so far has been quite so detailed as this one. So in chapter 5, Jesus meets a man who's been living among some tombs. He's effectively been living in a graveyard. And just notice he was uncontrollable. People had tried to bind him with chains, verses 3 and 4, but no one could manage. He wrenched the chains apart and just broke the shackles into pieces. And as we read on, we find out quite why the man is in such a state. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. There are multiple demons multiple evil spirits tormenting this man and the the power of evil in this man's life is destructive it's crushing he's absolutely overrun and he's beyond the help and even beyond the control of the people looking on and how does jesus respond this time well again just notice that the relationship is like a dog with its owner The demons ask not to be destroyed and instead to be allowed to move into a nearby herd of pigs. And verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. He allows it to happen. And so it happens. And having been pulling this man apart one piece at a time, well, in one fell swoop, the demons destroy the pigs. They career off the bank and into the water. But in contrast with those pigs... After the demons have left the man alone, verse 15, the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, is sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. It's a radical change from the man we saw before, isn't it? And again, well, it's meant to evidence that Jesus has power, real extraordinary power, this time over evil. And then the final two episodes in this little unit are kind of woven together from verses 21 to 43, where Jesus has power over disease and over death. Jesus meets a woman who's chronically unwell, verse 25. She's been bleeding, Mark tells us, for 12 years. And understandably, she's at the end of herself. She's tried turning to doctors. She's tried everything she can to find a cure and it's all been to no avail verse 26 she had spent all that she had and yet was no better but rather grew worse she is helpless and she's desperate in the face of her illness but she hears that uh, the famous healer jesus is in town And so when he's passing by, she takes her chance. She sidles up behind him through a mass of people crowding around him, and she touches his clothes as he moves past her. And something remarkable happens. Verse 29. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. 
that sickness, that desperate disease, gone just by touching him. And either side of that episode about a suffering woman, we meet a suffering father. His name is Jairus, and uh, Jairus is desperate. Mark tells us that when he sees Jesus, verse 22, he is literally begging at Jesus' feet. His daughter is seriously ill, and he too has heard that Jesus is, is a healer and wants to ask Jesus if he'll come and heal his little girl. Jesus agrees to go back to Jairus' house and to see his daughter, but on his way there, one of the members of Jairus' staff breaks some horrific news. Verse 35, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? If Jairus was helpless before, well, he's hopeless now. He'd done everything he could to try and save his little girl, but he couldn't help her. Now, we thought a moment or two ago about the advances in technology that have allowed us to try and make it rain. Just think, though, of the advances in medical technology, even over the past hundred years, never mind since Jesus was walking the earth in Mark's gospel. In the Western world, people live now for a long, long time. But even with the very best and most advanced technology, the brightest of medical professionals... Well, the very best we can hope for is delay. Of course, with the right treatment and the right medicine, medics and doctors can make people better, but not forever. There is a huge degree of, of powerlessness when it comes to disease and to death, isn't there? We don't like to think about it very often. But even today, as developed as we might think we are, we're still powerless to do very much about it very often. But in Mark's account, notice Jesus isn't put off by news that Jairus' daughter has died. Instead, he keeps going. When he arrives at Jairus' house, verse 38, the family are mourning downstairs. And yet he carries on to the room with the little girl along with her parents and some of his own followers. And he takes her by the hand, verse 41, and he says very simply, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, she does. It's remarkable, isn't it? Now, I know that that's a bit of a canter through each of those four episodes, and there is a lot more detail that could be unpacked. But when we widen the lens out like that, I wonder if you can see the big picture that's being painted. A picture of one who has control over the destructive forces of nature. Over one who has authority over demons and over evil. And one who has power over disease and even over death. It's an extraordinary picture and it's told as a matter of fact historical account based on eyewitness testimony. And the question that forces us to consider is the one that the disciples in the boat leave hanging for us at the end of chapter 4. I do think that's meant to hang over this whole unit as a, as, a, as a bit of a banner or a heading. Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? 
And I want you just for a moment to genuinely engage with that question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Because it is fair to say that he's probably the most famous and influential individual in all of human history. And yet there are all sorts of different opinions out there about who he was. But as we try to reach a conclusion about that, try to work out who Jesus was for ourselves... Well, we have to do something with these miracles, don't we? And actually, that's why Mark groups these miracles together in his account. Not only because they happened in this order, but because taken together, they function as an identity marker. They're a massive indicator as to who he really was. See, when I asked you a moment or two ago to, to list what it is we're afraid of, We list a number of different problems in our minds, don't we? Sickness and death and chaotic nature. And we might think of each of those as being kind of discrete things or separate issues from one another. But you see, the Bible tells us that that is not the case. Each of them are symptoms of a much more deep-rooted problem. Right back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebelled against our Creator rejected his rule over their lives. And from that day onwards, the world he created good, well, it was cursed. Sickness and death and chaos entered into the world, almost as intruders. And only God himself could fix it, could make his broken world right again. And so when we come to Mark's gospel, the miracles being described here, they aren't just standalone events, remarkable as they are. They function together as one big identity marker. They're meant to show us who this is. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him, that death itself obeys him? And the answer to that question that Mark wants us to be crystal clear about in these episodes is that he is God himself. And listen, how we answer that question, what we make of Jesus, isn't a hypothetical or an academic issue. It's of profound personal importance to each one of us. You might still be wondering why I decided it was a good idea to tackle all four of these incidents at once. Because yes, they're all situations in which Jesus shows his power. But we could say that about a lot of the situations we come across in Mark's account, couldn't we? Are we really meant to take them all together? Well, yes, I'm convinced, actually, that we are. Because I wonder if you notice that in each of the four episodes, Mark tells us that there are two differing responses to this Jesus and his supernatural power. And those responses lead us to our final point this morning. How will you respond, in fear or in faith? Just come back with me to that calming of the storm episode at the end of chapter 4 for a moment. As the water is rising and things are looking really sketchy, the disciples wake Jesus in a panic. And just notice Jesus' rebuke of them in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Fear and faith held out as contrasting responses to this Jesus. 
Then look again at the second episode at the beginning of chapter 5. After the demons are driven from the man, verse 15, people came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who'd had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Again, the response being described is fear. Only the fear is accompanied by a rejection of Jesus. They beg him to go. And in contrast with that, verse 18, the man who'd been possessed with demons, well, he begs Jesus that he might be with him. And as Jesus tells him, no, you go and tell your friends and family about me instead, the man obeys. So again, we have it. One, a fearful rejection of Jesus. And on the other hand, a faith-filled obedience to Jesus. And if you're still not convinced, check the final two episodes. I wonder if you spot yet more faith and fear reactions. Chapter 5, verse 33. The woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus. And in response, verse 34, Jesus commends her for what? Verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. And briefly, one final time, Jairus, in verse 36, do not fear, only believe. There is a contrast, isn't there, in each of these episodes between a fearful rejection of Jesus and a faith-filled obedience to him. And that isn't an accident. Mark's holding a mirror up to his readers, to, to, to us, frankly, with each of these episodes. As much as to say, well, how are you going to respond to him? Will you continue to fearfully reject him? Or will you trust him, even in the face of disaster, and of evil, and of sickness, and of death. Now, I'm mindful that even as I say that, it might well sound quite crass to some of us. As we think of atrocities committed in Ukraine over the past few days, or of extensive and disastrous flooding in places like Pakistan right now. Or perhaps... For some of us, more personally, as we reflect on our own lives and the person who's waiting for test results or the family member to get their test results, the person who's been recently bereaved. Because that is the reality of our experience now, isn't it? And it is worth pausing for a moment just to acknowledge that. That the chaos and the confusion and the anguish of the people we meet in Mark 4 and 5, it isn't divorced from reality. That is the world we live in just now. Christians can oddly sometimes be quite reluctant to acknowledge that that's the case as though it's an expression of a lack of trust in God. But you see, the Bible does not gloss over mess and difficulty. Quite the opposite, in fact. The Bible gives us a better framework to make sense of the mess of the world than you will find anywhere else. These four episodes describe what the world, what our lives are so often like. And in fact, from conversations with quite a number of people who are part of this church family, even over this past week, I know for a fact that they describe how things are for some of us right now. 
as people wait for, 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 for medical appointments or for test results for themselves or those who are close to them, as people mourn the loss of a loved one. We do live in a chaotic and an uncertain world, and help for the Christian does not come in pretending otherwise. But there is help for the fearful Christian, even in the midst of that chaos. Not in pretending that the chaos doesn't exist, but in knowing the one who is stronger. And if we need proof of that, of God's supreme power, we'll just look at Jesus in Mark chapter 4 and 5, with a word calming a storm, casting out a demon, raising a little girl to life. Now that may well still leave us with questions. If he is so strong, why doesn't he stop the chaos, for example? I wonder how many of us have asked ourselves that kind of question. And it is a legitimate question. But whatever we might be tempted to conclude from reflecting on our own circumstances, well, we can be sure that he really does care. And we can be sure of that because he entered in. That Jesus Christ stepped down from the glory of heaven into the chaos of this world. And we see that quite literally in Mark chapter 4 this morning, don't we? In the bow of a boat being battered by a storm. And even more profoundly still, we see it metaphorically at the cross. As he was battered by the chaos and the opposition of this fallen and broken world. Betrayed by his friends. Convicted in a sham trial. Humiliated and tortured and finally crucified. Now we might not always understand what he's doing in the chaos in fact, we often don't. But whatever his purpose is, we can't look at our lives and conclude that he's allowing things to happen, either because he's too weak to do anything about it. We see that in Mark 4 and 5. But nor can we conclude that he's indifferent or that he doesn't care because he entered in and subjected himself to that chaos. And he did so to make sure that ultimately his people... Will they be delivered from all of it into an eternity where there will be no more crying and no more chaos and no more confusion? Or in other words, he bore the buffeting waves so that you and I could enjoy eternal peace. Now that might not answer every question we might have about the various trials and suffering that we face day by day. But however chaotic life might feel, however powerless we might feel heading into another day, another week, well, we can be sure that he is powerful. And we can be sure that he cares. And that means that we can trust him. Let me invite you, let me encourage you to let your faith in one who is powerful begin to displace some of your fear. And if you are struggling to do that, struggling not to fear in the face of life's circumstances, well, ask him for his help. He promises to never leave his people, nor to forsake them. 
Now, as we draw towards a close, if you're here this morning and wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I do wonder what you make of all of that. Because it's often said that the Christian faith is wishful thinking, that it's escapism that allows weak people to get through life. It's a crutch for the weak. Perhaps you just want to stick their fingers in their ears and ignore life's problems altogether. But you see, the problem with that is that Christianity doesn't give you pat answers. It doesn't ignore the world's problems, but doesn't try to gloss over them either. We read in the Bible of a God who is absolutely powerful, and yet who sent his son to enter into the most extreme suffering at the cross. You see, that's too real and too true to life to be escapism and too messy in many ways to be a pat answer. But it is utterly compelling. And it's compelling because it's true. Now, if you've never considered that before, well, this would be a great time to do so. Let me, in fact, invite you to come along to a course we'll be running in January here called Hope Explored, where we'll think over the course of three weeks about the claims of Jesus, what it looks like to follow him, bring your questions, and chat through them with us. Find out about him for yourself. Will you reject him and continue to live in fear? Or will you trust in the disaster demon and death-defeating Jesus Christ, who promises that one day... Well, each of them will be done away with altogether. Let's pray to him now. Let's pray. We praise you this morning, Lord Jesus, as one who has power. Power over those things, those challenges in life against which we are utterly powerless. Help us, we ask, not to fear, at least not to be crippled by fear, but to trust you, the one who is powerful and the one who cares. And we ask, Lord, that even today, though someone who has never before acknowledged your power in their own lives for themselves would do so would bow their knee before you as Saviour and as Lord and would know the promise of your ultimate rescue from disaster, from demons, from disease, from death. Promise of an eternity in heaven and a new creation with you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.